Then Jesus went around teaching from village to village. Calling the twelve to him, he began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over impure spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra shirt. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. They went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed with oil many people who were ill and healed them. King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well known. Some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said, he is Elijah. And still others claimed, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, and he had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But she was not able to, because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. Finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The king said to the girl, Ask me for anything you want, and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, Whatever you ask, I will give you, up to half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, What shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. At once the girl hurried in to the king with the request, I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a dish. The king was greatly distressed, but because of the oaths, because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in the prison, and brought back his head on a dish. He presented it to the girl, and she gave it to her mother. On hearing of this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. I'm just going to pray for Toby before he preaches. Father God, we thank you for your word. We pray now for Toby that, as he preaches, that you would speak through him and that you would cause our hearts to receive your word and to grow and to learn more of you. Amen. The um, PowerPoint should come up in a second, um, which uh, hopefully is going to come. It's uh, it is on. Too far, you think? Um, well, if it's too far, then I'm going to move, so I'm closer. There we go. So, um, we've just read a pretty fascinating passage. Um, and I think what God's kind of trying to speak to us from this is this. 
the way and the cost of discipleship. And I've kind of got two aims that I want to get from this as we look at this today. First, I want us to see that we need to follow the way of Jesus' disciples. And secondly, I want us to see the cost of following Jesus. Now, I think it's pretty important that we actually did sort of actually define what we mean by a disciple. Um, because it's easy to just think about those 12 immediate disciples around Jesus. But they were followers of Jesus. Um, there were the 12 apostles, but there were plenty of disciples, people who sat at the feet of Jesus and um, listened to him and followed him and trusted him. Um, you don't earn the title of being a disciple. Okay, This is an interesting one. You don't earn it. You're chosen. You're chosen to be a disciple. Um, Jesus went out and he chose his disciples. Um, in fact, um, this is something which goes a lot further than this, but the important thing here to grasp is you don't, you don't earn it. It's not by being a, somehow an excellent person that you somehow get this badge to be a disciple. It's not that. It's something which is given when you are revealed how amazing Jesus is. Um, to, be a, to be a disciple, you need to be a broken human. That's a pretty key part. Now, if you look at all of the disciples, if you look at the, the sort of famous 12 apostles, you get these disciples who are all very broken. So, for example, there's a tax collector who'd been cheating and swindling people out of money. There were fishermen who were incredibly limited in their perspective and perhaps their um, literacy. These people were broken and they were limited. So to be a disciple, if you're feeling broken and limited, that, that's okay. Um, you're part of Jesus' new kingdom. Um, and what that means is that you're going to actually be used to help grow the kingdom. We're going to look at that a bit more later. But he's pretty uncompromising as Jesus. There's no middle ground. Although Jesus meets people in their sort of brokenness, um, he doesn't pull his punches. It's uncompromising. He uses things like the parable of the sheep and the goats, where he separates, at the end times, people into those who trust in Jesus and those who don't. He uses the parable of the, of the wheat and the weeds, that sometimes those weeds are going to be sort of taken away from the rest of the crop. You are either a disciple or you are not a disciple. The parable of the sower is a pretty stark parable, which teaches us that although many people will hear the gospel, few will actually respond and grow. Matthew 13 talks about Jesus likening the kingdom of heaven to a man who finds a treasure in a field, who sells all he had and bought that field. So there is this really extreme idea of a disciple being someone who sees the value of Jesus and goes for it wholeheartedly. There's no comfortable middle ground. Now, um, the test to see if you believe is if you follow. So it, that's the key bit here. So I really want you to see the difference between um, you don't earn it and the following bit at the end. So the following comes after the believing. You don't earn the title of being a disciple. Now, so, we're now going to look at this, and you can see my little um, my acronym down the side here, that we're going to basically follow. Um, the first thing which we can see is we need to be, if we're going to be a disciple, we need to follow Jesus' example. So, I've put the passage up here. He said, um, this is the last bit. So Jesus had been amazed at the lack of faith of people as he had been uh, preaching the, the good news, the gospel. Then Jesus went around teaching from village to village, calling the twelve to him 
he began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over impure spirit. But that key bit there, Jesus went around teaching from village to village. Now, this is interesting. It's interesting because Jesus went to the poor, the sick, the unfashionable. We're talking about a dusty part of Palestine. This isn't a particularly sexy venue. We're not talking about Jerusalem, Rome, all these amazing places. The first place he went to was dusty Palestine. What you can also see is that he actually meets people's needs. Um, But the first need was the need of the gospel. You can see that he goes around teaching. He taught the gospel. Now, when people talk about Jesus' ministry, they often talk about kind of a ministry of presence, which is that Jesus came and he was with people. He ministered to their sickness. He ministered to their spiritual needs. But actually, that is very true. But it, what that's missing is that those things never happened without actually Jesus being a rabbi, being a teacher, and teaching that the word of God was talking about him, and it required repentance, and it required all sorts of things which weren't particularly easy to swallow. But we see here that we have a Jesus who met people's needs. First of all, he taught the gospel, and he also dealt with their spiritual and physical needs. Now, on the eve okay, of Jesus' death, um, he actually said this, and this is a really interesting thing. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever believes in me will also do the works I do, and greater works than these will he do. So, we don't actually need to reinvent the wheel. So, what do I mean by this? Well, if Jesus is saying that we can do greater things than him, okay, he went around from village to village telling people the gospel and meeting need where he saw it. Well, actually, was Jesus lying then when he said that we were going to do greater works. Because I'm not seeing particularly greater works going on at the moment. No, he wasn't lying. He wasn't lying. The reason he wasn't lying was this. Um, Jesus is going to use us in our weakness. And I've got a little story for you to help sort of show you how amazing it is that God can use us if we follow Jesus' ways. There was, um, in 1944, in the Pacific Ocean, right in the middle of the war um, between... Uh, the Allied forces in Japan in a submarine deep under the Pacific Sea. Um, one of the sailors had fallen desperately ill with appendicitis. And this appendicitis had caused his temperature to rise up to 41 degrees Celsius. That is a severe fever. He was on the brink of death. And there was a guy there called Weller Likes, great name. And he had been a pharmacist's assistant. Now, he could see that this guy was not faring too well. So he, all he'd done was help people dispense medicines. There was no doctor for thousands of miles. This guy was going to die. He'd watched an appendix be removed once. So he said, listen, I could give it a shot. And so using spoons, which were bent, they pulled back the muscle and the skin. They used alcohol from the t- torpedoes to basically drip and actually um, get rid of the bacteria and it took him two and a half hours to root around and try and find the appendix. He was able to remove it, and using some stitching uh, to actually sew up the wound, he was able to eventually, just as the last drop of ethanol was about to sort of give up, 
he's able to sort of sew him back up. Now, this is not a religious story particularly, other than the fact that, that what he did was amazing, because that guy actually, 13 days later, was back serving on the submarine. And the reason it was amazing wasn't because what he'd done was particularly amazing. He'd probably done it all wrong. And he just about pulled it off. The reason it was amazing was because it was him who did it. A surgeon, you'd expect to be able to do that like that. We're talking about limited, broken people who follow the way of Jesus. It is more amazing, kind of, that Jesus would use us if we place our faith in him in that same way. So, we don't need to reinvent the wheel. And Jesus says that it can be even more amazing. Um, and so, the next thing. There's our friend. The next one. I want, I've, I've taken the O from the middle of the word. Um, okay. um, I want to honor Jesus' given brothers, sisters in arms. Now, you can see here, he says, Jesus, calling the twelve to him, he began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over impure spirits. Now, this is a bit worrying. It's a little bit worrying because um, the disciples, they really didn't have the greatest CVs. Um, So they've been a bit of a dead weight to Jesus' ministry so far. Um, They had misunderstood, largely, what Jesus had been teaching a lot. Uh, They'd become exasperated with Jesus when he wouldn't behave in the way they wanted to. They even stood in his way on one occasion in the book of Mark. So these disciples, their CVs weren't amazing. But Jesus puts them in twos. Now, he obviously knew that they knew enough. They had something that they could share. And he puts them in twos to strengthen their witness. Now, um, this goes back to Deuteronomy. um, And in Deuteronomy, it says, One witness is not enough to convict anyone accused of a crime. A matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. So there, that was part of the reason why he sent out in twos. There's also the fact that it's pretty hard to go out and share the gospel. So therefore, there's mutual support and encouragement that comes from that sort of going out together. And effective disciples work together. Now, the best analogy I could think of this was when I was at university, there were people who would call themselves disciples, Christians. And um, often the housing arrangements as students was quite a contentious area. Um, so either you could choose to live just with Christians, in which case you're in this kind of Christian bubble, and you had very little impact in sharing your message. Then there were the people who decided that they were kind of like pioneers. They'd go out on their own, and they'd live in and amongst people who had no idea, and um, often, sometimes that would work out, but often they would end up losing um, credibility. They'd often find it very, very difficult, and they'd go off the boil in terms of following Jesus. The ones that I saw where it worked the best was where actually, and I'm not su- suggesting that we all need to exactly follow this model, but it's just a, it's a case study of where this worked best, was where actually a couple of Christians come together and they build relationships with, with other people. They live their lives alongside them so that there's that encouragement and accountability whilst also being in and amongst people who need this, this, this good news badly. I'd like to point out that this is not dating, um, and I'm not talking about romantic dating. I'm talking about um, you don't get to choose who's kind of your partner. Jesus chooses who you go with and sends them out. So it's not like you could kind of dump the person that you were with and then go and find another disciple. Imagine the disciple that got Judas as, as, the, as, as the guy you go. It's not great. Um, sometimes you get to go with people that you like, like two of the brothers, I think it was Andrew and one of the others. They went together. Um, 
So sometimes it's great, other times it's tricky. But Jesus uses that, and he sends them out together. It's not dating. You don't get to choose. Um, next L is to lean on Jesus' authority. And um, what we can see here is it says, um, Jesus basically gave them authority over impure spirits. They went out and preached that people should repent. Um, they drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. Now, Jesus gives the followers, his followers, authority to spread this kingdom. Jesus is always talking about, throughout the Gospels, the kingdom of God is coming here. And when that kingdom comes, what you see is people's, as I said before, their needs being met, but also you're seeing this kind of this light shaft coming in to a dark, dark land where people have no real understanding of who God is and no relationship with him. And he's given them authority for that. But this is the key one, which I think we find really difficult. Jesus gives the authority to speak into people's lives about repentance. How un-English is this? Actually speaking into someone's life about their need to repent. I mean, that is uncomfortable. Actually going up to someone and saying, uh, sorry, there's a God, um, he's perfect. I mean, I'm not saying I'm perfect, but he is perfect. And what that means is that actually your way you've lived your life means that actually ultimately there's judgment waiting. That is a hard thing to say, to say that someone's life is not good enough. But we've been given authority by Jesus for this. Um, so when we think about our friends and our loved ones and people we come into contact with, authority has been given to us to speak about repentance. And also there's been authority to drive out demons and pray for healing. Now, we live in a society where this is kind of relegated to Halloween, the idea of demons and the demonic. Or maybe if you go on to sort of 4OD or something like that, they're sort of like the most haunted channel. Um, and it's generally thought of as being a little bit in the realms of fairy tale. But it's real and it is there. And what Satan has done in our society is essentially convince people that he's not really there. And so he's able to work what I like think of like a Russian bot, you know, like misinformation, like kind of working under the radar. But Jesus is quite clear that there are spiritual things. Now, that's not to say that there weren't misunderstandings at times about things, for example, illnesses that may have sort of presented in ways... I'm not saying that everything's clean-cut, but there is a spiritual world, and Jesus gives us the authority to chase those things out. I've only encountered, the, the knowingly, that kind of darker side of the spiritual world a couple of times. But when I have, and it's only happened twice or three times, I can promise you now that if you know and you follow Jesus, you have absolute authority over that. I've seen people frothing at the mouth and shouting when they hear the name of Jesus. When you put your hand on their arm and you tell them you're going to pray for them, they go limp and they, they, they start begging and calling you bizarre names because what you have is authority over that kingdom if you know Jesus. Um, I've put the next one is leave the armbands and comfort. Okay. Um, so these instructions, these are his instructions, Jesus' instructions to the disciples. Take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra shirt. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. Now, um, this is a picture, um, which you can actually see in the Birmingham Art Museum. Okay. I think it's entitled The Exodus, um, which is basically the, the people of Israel leaving their slavery and their bondage. Now, 
these instructions that Jesus gives are identical to the instructions that God gave the Israelites on the eve of their leaving. Leaving slavery. There's a parallel here. There's a mirror image in that these guys were leaving slavery and they were told to just get out of there. Don't, don't, you need to trust me, God. I'm not saying that literally. Okay. You need to trust God and go without all these provisions and I'm going to look after you and I'm going to set you free from slavery. And what these disciples are being told is actually, no, 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 no. What you're going to do is you're going to trust in me in exactly the same way, but you're going to set people free from slavery. So we can see a really beautiful way that they are to leave these armbands behind. I found some really sort of questionable photographs about sort of adults wearing um, armbands, um, but I decided not to show it. Um, the, the armbands don't actually help you swim, really, do they? They're, they're there sort of as a, like kind of really early stages. And I think what we like to do is in mission as a church, we think we need this, we need this, we need this. We don't. We need to trust. Um, and finally... Um, Here's a guy. I, I spoke to my uncle, who has been a humble, humble Christian man, for, and has ministered as a, as a pastor for 35 years in the same church, and he's now doing work in Africa. So I said, have you got any good stories of people who have really sort of stepped out in faith, um, have left comfort behind, and um, sort of just gone for it and sinned through? And he goes, I've got one that comes straight to mind. This guy... Um, is slightly unfortunate. His name is Tommy Titcomb, but he um, he is a uh, guy who um, was about five foot tall, around about the turn of the last century, so about 1900. Uh, he had a real um, fire in his belly to tell people about Jesus. So he went to what was called the Sudan Inland Mission, SIM, and he said, "Listen, um, I'm really keen to go there. They're like, you, you do realise that in that part of Sudan, they um, at the moment they're sort of they're generally." There's cannibalistic peoples. They're, most of our people who go over there are dying from malaria. Um, it's, it's not a great place to go. And frankly, you haven't got the qualifications necessary to really have much impact. And humbly, the guy went away. He got some training. Um, and he came back two years later. They thought they'd been managed to get rid of him, but he came back again. So they sent him off on a steamer. And he ended up in Sudan. And there was a guy called Dr. Stanup who had started the work there. And he took him uh, in a canoe up the river to the Egby people. Um, and the Egby people um, had some, uh, some Muslim populace, um, but mainly they were sort of um, animalistic, sort of, um, when I say that, what I mean is animists. Um, so they're sort of worship of spirits. And um, this was the only guy he had um, who, they had one person. Um, and this guy didn't turn up for a couple of months. Um, so he was literally just in a tribe. He had nothing more than his suitcase. And he just kept learning the language. So he didn't ask any questions. He just would watch and listen. Watch and listen. And so he came to a stage where he could share the good news with people. And um, he has incredible stories I could share with you. Um, I really enjoyed reading up on it. But he went with this, this other just Christian guy, shared the gospel, and pretty soon 10,000 people in Sudan had become Christians. He didn't have much. He was a very small guy, unassuming, but he followed Jesus and he left the armbands and the comfort behind. But there's something I want to, there's a warning here. It's all very well looking at these great giants of the faith, but there's a warning to those of us who choose to be disciples. Kath and I last, uh, at the beginning of this week, were in a town called Melbourne, beautiful Derbyshire town. You walk around, you see these beautiful cottages, and it's hard not to just sort of wish you were there. Um, 
But you go past the grandest houses, and the grandest houses are the rectories and the vicarages. In the 18th and 19th centuries, the church was scandalized by these parsons and vicars who knew everything there was to know about wine and cheese and hunting, but knew very little about the gospel. And hey presto, those places now are the places which have the least gospel witness. They're the darkest places. So there's a warning here that we need to leave our armbands and our comfort behind sometimes. This is an interesting one, to openly speak truth. Now, Jesus said, and if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. This sounds quite sort of aggressive, almost a bit bumptious, taking the sandals and sort of bashing them off and saying, you know, this is a testimony against you. What this stems back from is that within the sort of Jewish tradition, if you were walking in lands which were not um, Jewish, they were unclean according to the law, you would end up picking up the dust. So to kind of show them that they were unclean, you'd, you'd bang the dust off. So almost as, sort of as a warning against them that they, they needed to adopt the law. They needed to um, become clean. So what Jesus is doing here in saying, dust the feet, dust off your feet is a testimony against them. It's not that somehow you've cursed them by banging the, the dust off your feet. It's a sign. It's a symbol. And actually, it's a symbol of mercy. It's a symbol of mercy because you're not leaving, you're not doing the classic British thing of saying nothing and leaving people in limbo. You're actually telling them, listen, you've rejected Jesus. This is the situation that you're in. And it's a testimony to them. Let me give you a case study. One of my uh, best friends from home um, has flirted with the gospel many, many times. And we've had many great conversations. Um, I mean, I haven't been the best witness always, but he, under, he knows what the gospel is. He has encountered Jesus. And he has so far rejected that. Uh, now, do I leave it? Do I just sort of be polite and go, oh, well, you've kind of, all right, it's your, it's your, your decision. And I sort of meekly wander off. Is that actually loving him as best as I could? Or is actually me, metaphorically, taking the dust off my thing? That doesn't mean me necessarily leaving him and not being friends with him. What it means is, listen, friend, you've, you've rejected this. This has big consequences. You, I'm not just going to just sort of pretend that this doesn't matter. I think that's what we mean by dusting, just sort of shaking the dust off our shoes. Um, this is a cool one here. Then we can watch kingdom growth. So, this stepping out in faith, um, we can see here that they went and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. What we see is that when people follow Jesus, they honor their brothers and sisters. They lean on Christ's authority. They leave their armbands and their comfort behind. They openly speak of Jesus. We see kingdom growth. We've got 2,000 years of evidence of this being true. Now, call it what you like, but I have had a little bit of a, a, an idea, a vision, whatever you want to call it, of um, in our area, in Atwood Green, seeing people stood around the sort of um, high walkway, hearing the gospel at Easter being spoken. Now, whether that's uh, pertinent, I don't know. But what I do know is that God doesn't lie. And this is what he promises. That there will be kingdom growth if we see those things. Maybe we will see one day that park packed out with people 
hearing and responding to the gospel. Expect opposition is my final kind of part of the talk. So, we saw the second half of that reading was for Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, had him bound and put in prison. So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. Now obviously I've, I've skipped ahead there. So in this part of the reading, what we see is that John had been doing everything right. He'd been telling people about Jesus. He'd been um, he'd met with Jesus. He'd had a, a great experience of, of um, baptizing Jesus and seeing amazing works happen. But he got banged up in prison. He got banged up in prison. And in fact, he didn't just get banged up in prison. When um, someone overstretched himself with a bit of a bet, Herod Antipas, he ended up losing his head because he'd stood up for what was true. Now, when we speak into what is true, we can expect opposition. The reason is this. Um, I don't know if any of you guys have seen um, Dad's Army, but when someone complains or grumbles in Dad's Army, often someone will say, there's a war on. There's a war on. Okay, that's kind of like the retort. Now, there's a war on now. There's a spiritual war on. And if you tell people the truth and you do those F-O-L-L-O-W-E, you're going to get opposition because there's a war on. Um, let me give you some examples. This happened to John, opposition, because he spoke the truth. By the way, Herod Antipas, his, he married this woman, who we're told is his brother's wife. That's also his niece. I don't know quite how that works, but it's all twisted. He's speaking truth into a really twisted situation. We've got plenty of twisted situations in the 21st century. We speak truth into that. We're going to receive some kickback. But I want to encourage you. All of the disciples came to nasty ends. Only John ended up not being martyred, and he was locked up in prison anyway, in house arrest. Um, my hometown of Oxford, Latimer and Ridley, was set on fire for holding true to the doctrines of faith that we cling to now. William Tyndale, um, the very Bibles in front of you are written in English, um, are paid for in his blood for having had the audacity to translate it from Latin into English. Um, Helen Rosevere went into the Congo and, and gave up having a family, something she dearly wanted, an amazing missionary woman. Even now, you switch on the news, Asia Bibi, uh, the woman in Pakistan who has had false allegations made about blasphemy. She's facing a pretty bleak future at the moment. So when people say, oh, you know, the health and wealth gospel, i.e., if you, if you trust in the gospel, you're going to have a better life. That is a lie. It's a stinking lie. You have a better future. You have a better hope. But if you speak truth, you can face opposition. Now, I've got something nice to finish on. And it's quite reassuring. And it's this. Rest your eyes upon Jesus. Meanwhile, so I'm, going, I'm basically going to a passage in Matthew, which is a contemporary sort of passage. Um, and this is what it says. Meanwhile, John heard in prison about the works of Christ, and he sent two of his disciples to ask him, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? John expected opposition. John knew that if you speak the truth as a prophet, you're probably going to come to a nasty end. That didn't surprise him. But he didn't expect the doubts and the fears. 
Now, he sat in Antipas's filthy prison. He'd expected this. He knew that this would happen. Now, he was wanted dead, and John could see no reason why she would be denied her wish. What he hadn't expected was to be tormented by such oppressive doubts and fears. Since he had baptized in the Jordan, John had not doubted that Jesus was the Christ. But stuck alone in this putrid cell, he was assaulted by horrible, accusing thoughts. What if he'd been wrong? There'd been many false prophets in Israel. What made him so sure that he wasn't one of them? What if he had led thousands astray? There'd been false messiahs. What if Jesus was just another one? So far, Jesus' ministry wasn't exactly what John had always imagined the Messiah would look like. Could this imprisonment be God's judgment? It felt as if God had left him and the devil himself had taken his place. He tried to recall all the prophecies and signs that had seemed so clear to him before. But it was difficult to think straight. Comfort just wouldn't stick to his soul. Doubts buzzed around in his brain like flies around his face. The thought of being executed for the sake of righteousness and justice he could bear. But he could not bear the thought that he might have been wrong about Jesus. His one task was to prepare the way of the Lord. If he'd gotten that wrong, his ministry, his life, was in vain. But even with his doubts, there remained in John a deep trust in Jesus. Jesus wouldn't tell him the truth. Jesus would tell him the truth. He just needed to hear it from him again. So he sent out two of his closest disciples to ask Jesus, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? The affection that radiated from Jesus was palpable. Jesus was familiar with John's sorrows and grief, and the satanic storms that break on the saints when they are weak and alone. He loved John. So he invited John's faithful friends to sit near him as he healed many and delivered many from demonic prisons. Then he turned to them with kind tears glistening in his eyes and said, Tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. The lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear and the dead are raised up. And the poor have the gospel preached to them. John would recognize Isaiah's prophecy in those words. This promise would bring the peace John needed to sustain him for the few difficult days he had remaining. Out of love for his friend, Jesus didn't include Isaiah's phrase, proclaim liberty to the captives. John would understand. When Jesus had sent John's disciples away, he said something stunning about John. No one born of woman had ever been greater. This right after John questioned who Jesus was. In this age, even the greatest, strongest saints experience deep darkness. None of us are spared sorrow or satanic oppression. Most of us suffer agonizing afflictions at some point. Most of us will experience seasons when we feel as if we have been abandoned. Most of us will die hard death. The Savior does not break the bruised reed. He hears our pleas for help and is patient with our doubts. He does not condemn us. He is paid completely for any sin that is exposed in our pain. He does not always answer with the speed we desire, nor in his answer always the deliverance we hope for, but he will always send the help that is needed. His grace will always be sufficient for those who trust him. The hope we taste in the promises we trust 
will often be the sweetest thing we experience in this age, and his reward will be beyond our imagination. In John's darkness and pain, Jesus sent a promise to sustain John's faith. He will do the same for you. What we see is that Jesus points himself, shows himself to John. So when those doubts come, rest your eyes upon Jesus. Look at him. See him for who he is. And that will be sustaining. So, what I'd like us to think about now is we need to, if we want to be disciples, follow Jesus' example, honour Jesus-given brothers and sisters in arms, lean on Jesus' authority, leave the armbands in comfort, openly speak truth, watch kingdom grow, expect opposition, and rest your eyes on Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your word and its encouragement to us. We feel challenged. We know that we uh, so often will cling to comfort over your kingdom. And we pray now that you will um, fix this in us. We pray that we'll be able to look to you when we doubt. In Jesus' name, amen.